And we're thankful for all of you who are here with us celebrating today the worship of our Lord. We're in a series that started in the first of this summer entitled, It Begins. And it's about the beginning of the Christian movement, the beginning of the church, how it began. And we're in the first two chapters of the book of Acts. And we see, see the Holy Spirit coming. We see things happening. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, kind of the first of, you know, in this bigger series, you have like this little mini two-sermon series that talks about the Holy Spirit coming in two parts, kind of broke it in two. And uh, so what we saw, and, and really the thing about this whole series that I want you to see in what matters in this series is that no story matters more than the story of Jesus. So I want you to know that. That's, that's the theme through this whole series. That's what the early church believed. That's why they shared the gospel. You know, we're going to see that over these next few weeks with Peter preaching the gospel. Starting next week, we'll see that. I mean, no story mattered more than the story of Jesus. But as we saw last week with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, what we saw is this, that for the follower of Jesus, we saw that the Holy Spirit does what only God can do. The Holy Spirit does what only God can do because he's God. Now, he does it in the life of people who aren't followers of Jesus, too. I get that. But since we're talking about the early church, and we're talking about the beginning of the Christian movement, the church movement, it's important to realize the Holy Spirit does what God does. Now, we come to the second part of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. You don't have any sermon title to this. It's just kind of all entitled, It Begins. What I want you to see from the message today is this, that the spreading of the story of Jesus, that is the gospel, depends on the Holy Spirit working through the followers of Jesus. The spreading of that story of Jesus, what we call the gospel, depends on the Holy Spirit working through followers of Jesus. And so we come into the first part of the message today. What I want to share with you is this. He came and it began. The Holy Spirit came and it, whatever it is, <laughs> the Christian movement, it, it began. Now we saw last week that uh, there were some signs, the manifestation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. What we saw was through, you know, sound and sight and speech, that he came, and then it sounded like the noise. It sounded like uh, a, a mighty rushing wind. It appeared as if there were tongues of fire, though they weren't. It was the Holy Spirit. And then they began to speak in these other languages. And what we saw then is that with the filling of the Holy Spirit comes the power and the presence of God. And that when you're a follower of Christ, you have all the power and presence of God that he wants you to have in our life today and for the life of the church. So that's pretty critical. So now we, we pick up, keep going on the story, and we come to verse 5. Verse 5 says this. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, which would also include women, from every nation under heaven. Now, we would say, well, no kidding, in Jerusalem there would be Jews, right? I mean, you would think that's who lived in Jerusalem. But the point they're making in, in, in Luke is making in this uh, passage is that these were Jews were not believed from Jerusalem. Now, I told you last week, this was a celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost came 50 days after Passover. Now, more Jews lived outside of Jerusalem and outside of Palestine than in it. In fact, some think there were more Jews in Alexandria or Egypt than even in Jerusalem. So the Jewish world had, had just spread. And they were all over the place. And, it, and, and a lot of times, you know, they, were, they never would go back to the place they came from, to Palestine, to, to Judea, to Jerusalem. But it was expected of every Jew, and especially of every male, to at some point in his life come to Jerusalem for Passover. And if you came to Passover because of the expense and all that was involved, you oftentimes stayed all the way through Pentecost. It was a once-in-a-lifetime journey. And so they would bring their families. And so they were staying there. They were living there. They were there for a period of time. And these Jews were from, from all over the place. It says they were devout, which means they were committed. That's why they were there. They had come because of their love of the Lord. They had come because they were committed to the Jewish experience. So they were there. 
And it was from every nation. A nation is not a geopolitical unit. A, ge- a nation is a cultural group. From every culture under heaven. I mean, they, they, they'd all come. Verse 6 says this. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together. Now, what sound are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the sound of all those believers speaking in all those languages. So there's 120 believers. There were others who were still in Galilee, but they hadn't come. So these 120, they were all speaking. And you can imagine it's a little chaotic. They spilled out onto the streets. Now, the Holy Spirit had come. So they were, they were excited. They were full of joy. The presence of the God was with them through the Spirit. And they were, they were celebrating, speaking these languages that they didn't know. There was these miracles that were occurring. So they just spilled out onto the streets. And they were heading towards the temple if they weren't already there. And there were all these other Jews heading for the temple because it was Passover. And so there was just amazing commotion going on. And verse 7 says this of all, all those people. They were amazed and astonished. Now, there's multiple sayings going on in these verses about amazement, astonished, perplexed, bewildered. This, this, this was an unbelievable thing you can imagine. You know, being somewhere and all this noise, but 120 people just praising God and speaking languages. And so the idea of amazed and astonished is emphatic. You know, they use kind of two words that are synonymous. We do that. I do that when I preach. Sometimes you know, when I'm writing things, I want to be emphatic. I'll use, you know, two words. These words speak of a marvel, of an unbelievable experience. It was an emotional experience. And they were saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It was even more amazing because they could tell from their accent they were from Galilee. And Galilee, back then, Galilee was kind of like, that's kind of like the boondocks. I mean, everybody kind of looked down on Galilee, you know. It's like, you know, there are places in America, I guess, people look down on, like, yeah, you're from there. You know, that they're like, uh, you know, I know, uh, I know probably even in New Mexico, I've heard some of you talk like about people like from Deming or Lordsburg, how they are. I don't know if it's true. If you're from Deming, I apologize from Lordsburg. I don't, I don't even know what to tell you, you know. And I, and I get that, you know, from, I'm, I'm from South Texas. I have a Texas twang. If I want to jack it up a bit, I can really sound like I'm from Texas, you know, and people kind of, when you have that kind of accent, kind of like down. I even heard, this is how biased people are. I was listening to a sports talk radio show the other day, and um, guys from New York, you know, in typical New York attitude, talking about Texas. And he said, talk about Texas being in the middle of nowhere. Like, how is Texas in the middle of nowhere? You know, it's the second largest state. It's larger than New York. In fact, it only take about half of Texas to go and whip New Yorkers all over the place. How are you saying that about us? You know, it's an insult. They were insulting these people. And this is what they said. How is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? The language we were born. Now, the word language here is the word for which we get our term dialect. Last week, we saw the word used glossa, which means tongues. It's also in verse 11. It means language, a language that can be known. Here, the word dialect means even in the uniqueness of every language, even in America. You know, you could tell kind of with some people what parts of the country they are from. Like from Texas, you can tell people from the south, people from the east coast maybe. This, there's a dialect. So they were hearing it in the uniqueness of language. And then they go on to describe, Luke describes who these people were. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. You can get on the internet and look all this up if you want where all these from. This group of people is not exhaustive, but it's kind of comprehensive. And here's what he says. They were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabs. So all these people. Now, with Jews, they also mentioned proselytes. Proselytes was Gentiles who converted to Judaism. So all these people were there. And, and I said, it's from all these different places. And it was amazing. And they were hearing everything. And notice what they said. It says right here, 
We are hearing them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. The word tongues is the word close to that. We hear them in our language, our tongues. We understand what they're saying. And they're speaking of the mighty deeds of God. This would be the things that God had done through Christ. It would probably include how he fulfilled the scriptures, include the death and resurrection. This is an amazing thing to hear the gospel in their language. Now, we, we need to kind of understand that People back then could speak multiple languages. You know, I mean, as an American, you know, I speak English. That's all I speak. I, I barely speak that well. But, and, and, and that's kind of typical because, you know, the way things are in America. And it's the language of commerce and culture. But, you know, there are a lot of people, even in America, but all throughout the world, that can speak multiple languages. It's always kind of been that way. And back then, they would have spoken the language of their origin, of where they were born. That makes sense. And they probably, because they were Jewish, spoke either biblical, classical kind of Hebrew, so they could speak in the classic terms of their faith, or Aramaic, which would have been kind of like a common Hebrew, just to make simplify things. Plus, they probably would have spoke Koine Greek, common Greek, because when Alexander the Great conquered the world 360 years earlier, and the world was really what ended up becoming the Roman Empire, was basically Alexander's what he conquered. He taught them all, make sure they had the Greek culture, and so the Romans just kept that. So they could speak multiple languages. We'll see next week that when Peter preaches to all of them, he's going to speak in one language, probably Hebrew or Aramaic. But here, the important thing is they heard it in their own tongue, their own language, their own dialect. Now, that's, that's significant. Because it signifies what the gospel is doing. Now, some people think that them hearing that no languages is kind of redoing or undoing Genesis chapter 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel when they spoke one language and spoke many, maybe. Undoubtedly, it's a fulfillment of uh, Genesis 12, 8, uh, excuse me, 12, 3, where God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And here he is blessing the whole world through Abraham in symbolic form. Jesus said, you're going to be uh, my disciples and you're going to make disciples in all the nations. And baptize him. So all the nations, all the cultures. In Acts 1.8, you know, we saw a couple of weeks ago, this, this would have been 10 days prior to this. He just said, you'll be my witnesses. And through all the world. I mean, this, what this really is, is telling us this. It, it's reminding us that the gospel is for every culture and every language, every people group. That the people group don't have, even though they're all in Jerusalem, I realize it. They don't all have to be the Jewish. They don't all have to come there. That at some point, the gospel's going to them and their cultures. It's important to realize that, uh, you know, Joe Andrews, who's uh, the baptisms, our campus pastor, he's been here seven years, he and his wife Leanne, they were in Argentina. He was a missionary there for eight years. And when he went to Argentina, and in Argentina they speak Spanish. And when Joe went to Argentina, what Joe did not do is say, listen, I want you to hear about the story of Jesus, so you're all going to have to learn English. And you're going to have to learn to speak English, so you can learn about Jesus. No, he learned to speak Spanish. Leanne learned to speak Spanish, so she could obviously correct Joe whenever he was wrong. But, you know... They went to their culture. And here's, here's what we're seeing when the Holy Spirit comes. Taking, taking the gospel, the story of Jesus, to their culture, to their language, so they can understand it with simplicity. Verse 12 says this, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity. In other words, it's just, it's just un- I mean, this is an unbelievable thing to hear all these people speaking about Jesus in your language. And they were saying to one another this, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, or they, you know, they were making fun of them. They were full of sweet wine, or they, they got drunk on wine, which would be kind of odd to be able to be drunk and then be able to speak coherently a language not your own when most people can't even speak coherently their own language. So it's kind of foolish. And so what we see here, though, is just, is just two things that kind of come out. That's pretty common back then, and it's common today. When people hear the gospel, and they, their response is something like this. One, they want to know more. What is this? I want to know more about it. 
Or two, they tend to reject it. They tend to mock it. And it goes away. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit's coming. And everything changed. And this is what we see. The coming of the Holy Spirit was the coming of the gospel of Jesus for all people in all cultures. It began. At this moment, it begins. This is the moment where the spreading of the gospel of Jesus began. And it continues even to this day. The second thing I kind of want to share with you today is really a question. And the question I want to ask is this. Who gets to hear about Jesus? Who gets to hear about Jesus? We live really in a time of tension within the Christian movement. This is not uncommon. It's been going on. But the tension has to do with how far do we go to the culture around us? How far do we go to them to share the story of Jesus? I, back in January, I preached a series out of the book of Hebrews uh, dealing with the culture. And one of the things that I made crystal clear, I think, and I was emphatic about, something I've said many times, is that we cannot embrace the culture. We can't take the culture that rejects Jesus, that rebels against God. We can't take that culture and embrace it, but we have to encounter it. We have to engage it with the gospel. In other words, we connect without compromise. Well, there are some within the Christian world, and I would say at this point they're no longer part of the Christian world, that have gone so far as that they take the authentic story of Jesus found in the New Testament and they reject it. They reject the nature of Jesus. They reject the work of Jesus. They reject the fact that Jesus is the one and only way to God, even though he himself says he is. They reject that in an effort to try not to offend the culture and embrace the culture. To some degree, I would say, they have gone way too far, and they have lost the authenticity of the gospel. Others go the opposite direction. They don't want to do anything in connection with the culture. They live, some of them, almost some, some groups that live like they're in another century. I don't mean the last century. I mean the one before that. Certainly there are groups that lived decades in the past. I encountered them even in our world. It's an amazing thing. And even in Baptist life, and we're, we are a Baptist church, we're first Baptist church. So I, I know some of you may not realize we're Baptist. I, actually, I have people, I hope this is not you, I don't mean to, I'm not making fun of you or anything, because I, I can get it, it's easy not to understand this because we go by FC, FBC. But we are a Baptist church, it's in our name, first Baptist church, so we're Baptists, so through and through. And uh, we're Southern Baptists. And in, in our world even, uh, there's conflict, there's tension about how far do we go. I was at the, the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist denomination, our convention in New Orleans a couple weeks ago, and, that, and this, this is the battle, it's the tension. And I can tell you right now, I don't think it's going to end well. I think, I think there's going to be just a lot of, over the next four or five years, just a lot of people just saying this is ridiculous. I, I, I tend to think what we're doing right now is just weird and wacko beyond all belief. Because, you know, we're, 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 we're losing focus on what really matters, that people need Jesus and focus on things that probably don't really matter that much. It's just my opinion, I don't know. So we're, we're, but this battle goes on, and we forget what it's really all about. It's about three things. It's about the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. It's about the mission, which is to help people come to salvation through faith in Jesus and only him. And it's about the message, and the message is Jesus is Lord. It's the gospel message, the story of Jesus. The other things can change. Methods change. Ministries change. All of that stuff changes. We need to understand that. We, we sometimes lose sight of that. In our world, in Baptist life, there are about 47,000 Southern Baptist churches, give or take. Right now we take a few because we lost a few. But there's about 47,000 of us. And here's a statistic that is held true. I'm, I'll be in a Baptist pastor for 43 years, starting sometime in September. 43 years of this. This statistic holds true for all that time. Half of Southern Baptist churches will only in the course of a year baptize two people or less. Now, 
Baptism is not necessarily the only way to understand whether people come to faith. People come to salvation all the time and never get baptized. We experience that here. And sometimes people get baptized, and we have no part of their salvation, really. But it's still a pretty accurate summation. We're going to have six baptisms over this year. Um, The next one is the end of August on a Wednesday night. We'll have usually 8 to 15 people. You know, we see that. So we're fortunate. About half of all churches baptize two or fewer, and 25% will baptize none every year. And a lot of times it's the same 25%. Now, I get there's a lot of really small Baptist churches. And they're in tough areas, and they're not going to reach anybody. I get it. But a lot of them don't reach people because they choose not to. In 1985, I went and pastored a little church that was really small in the rural, rural area. They hadn't baptized anybody in about three, four, five. I think it was five years they hadn't baptized a soul. Now, we, we did baptize a couple when I got there, and I was excited about that. But can you imagine going five years and not seeing anybody come to Jesus? How is that possible? How is it possible that you have this unbelievable message of Jesus Christ and you're sharing it? And I don't care how small you are, no one ever comes to Christ. And this tension exists about why some don't reach and why some reach, but they get criticized. And it's just ongoing. So here's what I want you to know. It's nothing really new. It's an ongoing battle. It's begun, it began back in the book of Acts. In fact, here's the thing. As the book of Acts progresses... We see ongoing tension concerning how different groups receive and respond to the gospel. It's an ongoing tension. Now, right now, at the beginning, they're all Jewish. A few proselytes who've converted to Judaism, they're Jewish. By the end of the book of Acts, Christianity, 30 years later, is becoming mostly Gentile. By the end of the first century, Christianity is Gentile. The the Jews have just stopped coming to Christ. And about from this moment, the one right here, about 17, 18 years later, when Paul goes, and you see it in Acts 14, 13 and 14, he goes in with Barnabas and begins sharing the gospel to Gentiles. Gentiles come to faith. And there are a lot of Jews in Jerusalem who are followers of Jesus who believe that Gentiles have got to become Jewish in order to become Christian. And this battle goes on. So Paul, in the 15th chapter of Acts, Paul and Barnabas goes to Jerusalem and meet with Peter and John, you know, the guys with Jesus, and James, the brother of Jesus, who is now a follower of Jesus and is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He is pastor of the church, the mother church. And so they have this conversation. In the end of it, James says this to his people in Jerusalem. To these Jewish believers in Acts 15, 19, as I summarize this, it's a powerful, it's an important point. It's a critical moment in Christianity. He says, it's my opinion that we not make it difficult for Gentiles to come to faith. He goes, guys, we got to quit making it so hard for people to believe. Quit making it hard for them to believe. Now, he puts some stipulations about how they interact with, uh, you know, with paganism, but he says, we got to quit making it hard. And out of this comes what, this principle that I think exists still today that we need to understand, and it's very simple. The story of Jesus, that is the gospel, never changes, but how we present it does. The story of Jesus never changes. How we present it has to change. You can't do today what we did when I first entered ministry, the same old things. It just changes. Worship changes. I don't preach behind a pulpit anymore. I never needed one because I've never used notes. Why did I have to have the pulpit? I had a guy in the red who tells me, what are you going to pound if you don't have a pulpit? I said, come on up here. I'll pound on you, you knucklehead. I mean, I, you know, I don't wear a suit and coat and tie anymore. Even the traditional service, you know, I dress like this. Things, I just keep changing. Time goes on, I change. And I don't think I'm going to wear any less than I wear now. I think this is it. I've come to the limit. But, you know, it's just, so here's the thing. Don't confuse the message with messaging. In your personal life, as you encounter people, don't confuse the message with messaging. The message never changes. How we, how 
we get that message to people has to change. Because people change. Culture changes. I don't want to embrace the culture. I don't want to accept what it believes, but i got to communicate to them. So here's the thing, and this is what gets churches in trouble, what I'm about to share with you. Stop expecting people who are not followers of Jesus to act like a follower of Jesus before they become a follower of Jesus. Quit expecting people who aren't Christians to act like Christians before they become Christians. By the way, when I came to this church, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. It was a problem. Certain groups, certain individuals, certain people really weren't welcome because their behavior or their beliefs were wrong. And this is what we, this is what we do in a lot of churches. It's a problem. They look at people and say, well, if you'll change your beliefs and change your behavior, you can come here and learn about Jesus. Well, how are they going to change your behavior and beliefs if they don't know about Jesus? Why are we expecting them to act like something they're not? Why do you expect people who aren't Christians to act like Christians when Christians barely act like Christians? And I deal with people, and, and I know you do, and, you know, and, and, and people ask me, you know, how, how do I deal with people? How do I help, you know? all that come to Christ. And I just have certain things I do. And I look at the book of Acts and I see this here, but here's the thing I want you to know. I don't look for things we have in common. I just try to be common, but not phony. I try to communicate in a way people understand. I don't, I don't look. When I encounter people, I'm not looking for something we have in common. I just want to be common. To be common is to be plain, to be ordinary. I don't want to be phony. I'm not going to act like something I'm not. I'm not going to pretend, you know, like I'm 22. I'm not, listen, I'm never, if I wear jeans because then they have a hole in them, it's because I slipped and fell and they have a hole in them. My, my mama would just, if she'd roll over in her grave, if she knew I wore bought jeans with holes in them, man, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to frost my hair, tip it or whatever, shade it. I'm not, it's not going to be shades of anything, but just gray, you know? Now I'm not saying I won't do something to get more of it, but I just, it's just not changing, right? I don't want to be 22. I like being 62. I could be 52. But I mean, I'm a lot smarter than you 22-year-olds. Why would I want to be dumb like you, man? I don't want to be. I'm not going to try to be you. I don't need to be your version of cool. I'm my version of cool, right? But what I do want is to make sure you understand. All of you, whoever you are, wherever you come, you understand the gospel. Today, when they do surveys, they're asking people their religious preference, the fastest growing group, not the largest group, largest group is still Christian. The fastest growing group is none, N-O-N-E. They have no religious affiliation. It doesn't mean they don't believe in God. It doesn't mean that they don't have moral values. It doesn't mean they've never read the Bible. It means they have no religious affiliation. We find more and more coming to our church, people who are unchurched. It means they really didn't grow up in church. Or they're under church. They went to a church, but they didn't really get anything out of it. Or they're de-churched. They were in a church and they left. In a lot of our Christian terms, they struggle with. I take the word, I love the word gospel. It's a great word. It's fantastic. The power of the gospel is a beautiful word. But our culture has taken gospel. They've, co- they've co-opted that term gospel and they've watered it down. It means weird things. So a lot of times, I just talk about the story of Jesus. I've said that, that we're sharing the story of Jesus. That's the gospel. In fact, what I'll do is I'll, over time, use those terms interchangeably, whether I'm preaching or just dealing with the person. I'll say, can I tell you, you know, they want to talk about Jesus. I can tell you the story of Jesus. Tell me the story of Jesus, okay? Here's what the gospel is. I just, I just use those terms interchangeably so they understand that. Take the word sin. The word sin is a fantastic word. But you know what we've done as Christians? We've taken the word sin as a hammer and beaten people over the head with it. You're a sinner, you sin, blah, 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 blah. And people hate the word sin. They react to it. So I used to turn rebel against God because that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. And I just talk to people. I say, you know, you've lived your life in rebellion against God. And eventually I'll say that rebellion against God, which we call sin. You know, and I'll just interchange those terms so they get to understand. See, what I want to do is not use all the right churchy terms. 
I want people to understand Jesus. Just like in Acts chapter 2, when they didn't use all the Hebrew terms and all the Aramaic terms, or even the Greek terms. They used the terms they would understand in their language. This comes back to the Holy Spirit. This comes back to the Holy Spirit working in our life. And what does the Holy Spirit do for us? He gives us power and presence of God. He doesn't give us all the power of God or all the presence of God, but he gives us all we ever need. And we have all we ever need from the very moment we have the Holy Spirit. So here we are, all of you who are believers in Jesus and followers, whoever that is, plus me, in our presence, we have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Understand this. The Holy Spirit wills to work and will work in the life of every follower in church. The Holy Spirit desires to work in your life and will work in your life. So why do so many churches never reach anybody for Jesus when the Holy Spirit of God is there to work? And why do so many of us never help anyone come to faith when the Holy Spirit that indwells within us and gives us the power and presence of God not only desires to do it, will do it? I'm not saying you have to go to everyone you meet in church. Jesus, I'm going to go out probably to lunch today to one of two restaurants. They know me, those two restaurants I go to. I got breakfast from a third restaurant that I go to all the time. I don't walk through the doors and start telling about Jesus, but they all know I follow Christ. They know where I pastor. They know I'm the pastor of this church. Most of them do anyways. And so every time I encounter them, I'm realizing, how do I live as a follower of Jesus in front of them? Every time they make a mistake, I love them and help them through that and don't say a thing. And I just think about their need. I ask them how they are. I'm constantly working so that at some point I'm going to get a chance to tell them about Jesus. And that's happened. And I know one of them places, Troy had that. Troy absolutely had an opportunity. We go to the same restaurant sometime to do that in one of their lives. We have those opportunities. And you just think about, why don't you just bring them here? You say, well, I'm not good at telling people. Okay, I get it. That's my strength. That's like my A game. Well, it's my B plus game. <laughs> Bring them here. Somebody will tell them. See, here's the thing. You, you better figure this part out. If, I, if you get nothing else out of this message today, get this. At some point, you and I will decide who gets to hear the story of Jesus. You know that, right? At some point, you and I, we decide who hears the story of Jesus. And if our church says there are certain people we don't want to tell it to, and if there are certain people that aren't welcome here, and there are certain people that can't walk through the doors of our church, we have decided they don't get to hear the story of Jesus. Praise God. And if you have people in your life that for whatever reason, you decide to never tell them the story of Jesus, you have determined that they don't get to hear about Jesus. And I guess the question is, why do you get to make that decision? It's not yours to make, but we get to make it. Who do you know in your life that needs Jesus, but you've kind of decided they don't get to hear about him? And I'm not going to invite him to church. I don't want them to know I go to church. I'm not, I'm not going to pray for them. I'm not going to ask them, can I pray for you? Because I don't, I don't want them to know that I pray for them. I'm not going to do anything to let them know I follow Jesus. So I've just decided they don't get to do that. And who does our church look at and say, hey, 
we've determined that you, you don't get to hear the story of Jesus. Began the message by saying that the sharing of the story of Jesus, the gospel, depends on the Holy Spirit working through the followers of Jesus. It depends on him working through us. So who do you know that needs to hear a story? Who do you know that you need to touch their life so they hear about Jesus? Maybe you're the one that needs Jesus. Maybe the problem is that you don't know Jesus because you've never trusted him to be your savior. So today you can do that. I'm going to be standing here. A couple others will be here. And if you need to give your life to Christ, why don't you just come and trust Jesus to be your savior? Why don't you come and say, I want to give my life to Christ. And maybe there's people you know that need Jesus, people you need to share that story with. So today, why don't you say, you know, I'm going to quit denying them the story of Jesus. And even if it, all that means is you just invite them here, at least you're going to tell them about Jesus. If you want to join our church, you can do this. I'll pray for someone you love. We'll pray with you. I don't know what it is you need to do today, but I know this, you're going to walk out the store. And as you walk out, ask yourself, do I know the story of Jesus? And if you do, then ask yourself this, who gets this week to hear about Jesus? Who gets to hear the story of Jesus? As Father, the Holy Spirit coming, unbelievable, amazing. And just the way he worked that early church and the amazing, miraculous things that occur. And those amazing things still occur. They can occur in our church. They can occur in the life of our people. If we will just let the Holy Spirit, with all the power and presence, we just let him work in our life. And we look at the people around us and say, they need to hear about Jesus. They get to hear about him through us. And we go, and however we can, in whatever way we share the story of Jesus, Father, the Holy Spirit will break loose and we'll give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand?